Church, before we jump into the content of the new series we're kicking off today, I want to highlight a ministry that Jesus has been up to here at Encounter, our youth ministry. Those people are absolutely amazing. They did their youth all-nighter a little while ago, and my daughter and some of her friends got to go on this thing, and, and wow. Last year, the year before this one, it was an all-nighter, and so this time it was a late-nighter, so we're learning and we're growing you know, along the, way, along the way, making those adjustments. Listen, 62 kids, uh, 10 different schools, four yeses to Jesus during the worship part of this thing. I mean, it's just, it's so cool to see what God is up to in that ministry. I want to highlight something, uh, something special uh, right now. Uh, it was a viral YouTube clip I came across some years back. You see, a lot of colleges and institutions invite their outgoing professors to give what's called a last lecture. Uh, this is an opportunity that uh, professors have to share their accumulated wisdom uh, with their peers, with their students, with their family members, the next generation, whoever, whoever is in attendance. And one gentleman uh, by the name of Randy Posh uh, gave his last lecture probably in a more literal sense than anybody previous. Because when Randy, as a computer science professor at Carnegie Mellon University, stood up to give his last lecture, what he and everybody else in that room knew was that he was dying. He had stage four pancreatic cancer. And he knew that this would very literally be his last lecture, his last chance to impart these profound words of wisdom that he has accumulated over the years. This was his opportunity to not only impart his accumulated wisdom, but also this was his chance to guide the next generation, even his young kids in attendance, to offer them wisdom, to, to guide them into what he described as the most successful life possible. For him, video recorded, this was his chance to provide his young kids a medium to know and understand what made their dad tick by the time they were old enough and could understand it. It was his last lecture. And by the time I came across it, the video was turned into a, a book. And I'm reading through these little statements that he has that shared these profoundly wise points about how to build the best life possible. And it, it resonated with me on a, on a really deep level, especially like as a preacher, right? Because I share with you these little statements all the time, you know? And, I, and a lot of you are like, you know, pretty soon you are just going to be able to speak in like these little sayings. It's just aphorisms out of you all the time. You're not going to be able to make a coherent sentence. I get that. You know, these little statements that if I said them right now, you'd be like, yeah, I think, I, I think I've heard those at least a dozen times in the last couple of months alone, right? Like, hey guys, sin has a gotcha and God doesn't want it to get you. You're like, I've heard that one before. Yeah, and you'll hear it again because it's true. And I keep saying it. And my kids could probably also quote these things, right? Other statements like, man, Jesus loves you to death and back again to new life. You know that, right? Like these are just these, these accumulated wisdom statements that I've collected over the years that just mean so much to me. And I think there's so much depth to them, so I share them with people around me. Not all of them are spiritual as well. Drop in on my family and you'll start to hear other dadisms, these sayings, these, these things like a shoddy craftsman blames his tools. You know, my kids love that one. My kids love it when I say a job half done is a job not done at all. <laughs> these, little, these little statements jam-packed with meaning and, and history, a lot of it personal history. But what, what I want to do in, in reading Posh's last lecture 
and having my own little statements too, what I want to do is zoom out. I want a, I want a wider perspective on all of this, right? Like I want not just one guy, a smart dude, a computer science professor in his 40s. I want more than just, I want more than like my words, you know, and a nearly 40-something pastor in West Michigan. Like I want a wider angle lens than all of that. I want... I want like the accumulated wisdom of humanity. I want the best statements, the wisest truthisms from all over the world, all throughout history. I want like this ultra concentrated, distilled wisdom at my fingertips, preferably compiled into a little book in the center of my Bible called Proverbs. And it's this, this wisdom, like as a last lecture, where Solomon is this voracious collector. Some of you knew people that were maybe collectors of baseball cards, other people collectors of stamps, maybe something more interesting than both of those things. I don't know. Solomon is a collector of wisdom statements. And it didn't matter who said them, whether they were a God-fearing person or not. He found if it was true, I'm writing it down. And so he believed, a little theology kind of coming through the book of Proverbs as we get into it, he believed that God had imparted his wisdom into all these different areas of life, all these different areas of the whole creation. Like God, exercising an attribute of his called chakma in Hebrew, it's loosely translated to wisdom in, in English, that wisdom was around, it was available for the taking. Wisdom was around and you could either join alongside wisdom or like resist wisdom. And it, and it was kind of up to you. And he wrote this book and collected these sayings about ways to kind of partner alongside or, or maybe to resist. And throughout the book of Proverbs, he characterizes wisdom, this attribute of God, as a woman. Lady Shakma or Lady Wisdom. Which is like kind of obvious, right? Because if it was a dude named Wisdom, you're like, I don't know, I'm not buying it. <laughs> and Solomon says you can either work alongside Lady Shakma Wisdom or you can resist Lady Wisdom. And he just identifies a few places. He, he goes, if you lie in your taxes, if you gossip about your friends, you're, you're working against lady wisdom. But, but if, you, if you tell the truth, if you work hard over a long period of time at something, if, if you ask for advice of somebody maybe older and wiser than you, it's like you're partnering. It's like you're working alongside this imparted wisdom that God put into the world. And he backs it up and he goes, an observation of humanity throughout the centuries is it generally, not always, but generally, if you partner alongside Lady Wisdom for long enough, your life will be so much more fulfilling. Your life will have so much more purpose, so much more meaning. Your life will be so much better than somebody who works against Lady Wisdom for their lives. And so he goes, these are some ways to work against. These are some ways to work for. And he steps back and he goes, now you, my son, in his last lecture in Proverbs, the choice is yours. As we call this series, How to Live, life lessons from the book of Proverbs, but really it's life lessons of, that God has imparted into his creation since the beginning of time. How to live the best life possible, how to live the most fulfilled life possible as it relates to the work that we do, the money that we spend, the friends that we have in our lives, finding purpose to our lives. And today we start with the words that we use. Uh, when you came in, there's a, uh, a purple card that you potentially received at the door. We've got a bunch of them, and we're going to hand them out all series long. It's our mem memory work 
Bible memory work, we're going super old school with this one. And, uh, and these statements are just, they're, they're made to be learnable. And so we're just going to kind of learn some of these things together. The first one, as it relates to our words, we open up Proverbs 18, verse 21. And we see Solomon writing, and he goes, this is, this is aligning yourself with lady wisdom. He goes, the tongue has the power of life and death. And that's our memory work, so let's say it together. All, all of our locations, Fulton Heights, you're invited to online wherever you are, driving in a coffee shop, you're invited to play it along. Uh, Proverbs 18, verse 21, say it together. The tongue has the power of life and death. Part of us, when we read something like that, we're like, okay, this is hyperbole, Right? This is a bit of an exaggeration. I mean, it's, it's true, like words aren't important, but like life or death on the line, like come on. Like that's too much. And sometimes I think we, we think that it's too much because of the sheer volume of the words that we use. So I read this stat that uh, we say something like 16,000 words every single day. And some of you are skewing that thing really up on the higher end of the... <laughs> like I should be the one to talk, pun intended, Right? 16, it's a 60-word book that we could publish every single day just by the words that we use. And there's this temptation within that to say, I mean, man, come on, 16,000 words every single day just by the sheer volume, the, how many words that we use all the time, each one can't possibly mean all that much, right? I mean, it's like I bring my kids to the beach and, uh, and we do the thing with my son, you know, because we immediately, because of who we are and who all of us are, we start digging a hole in the sand we all do it, right? I don't know why. There's something like very human about this, but we dig a hole in the sand and my son takes the little, little cup or the scoop or whatever it is and he goes over to the water, Lake Michigan, the largest, one of the largest freshwater bodies in the world, right? The freshwater capital of the world. And he goes into the lake and he scoops up some water and he goes over to the sand pit and he just pours the water in. What's you doing, bud? And he goes, Dad, I'm emptying Lake Michigan into our sand pit. <laughs> Bless his heart, Right? <laughs> Like, come on, dude, it's Lake Michigan. You're not going to like move Lake Michigan into the, into the sand pit one teaspoon at a time. Like, come on. And a lot of us, we make the mistake, don't we, of thinking that our words are like that, are just as insignificant as that. Like, like are the words that we use, because there's so many, 16,000 of them, it's just like each one of them is just like picking a little scoop of water up and, and pouring it into a sand bucket, into a sand pit next door. And we're like, it doesn't. It doesn't do anything functionally. It's just, it's so small compared to all of it. I don't think that's true. I don't think you think it's true either. I'll demonstrate it to you a couple of times. I've shared this story before. I'll keep sharing it again because I'll never live it down anyway, so it doesn't matter. Years ago, I was a younger and much cooler, early 30-something, and, uh, we had an intern cohort here at the church where people wanted to learn a little bit more about ministry, and I thought, I've got a lot of accumulated wisdom over the year. I should be the one to teach them how to do ministry. And so we had a bunch of uh, really cool, like, young 20-somethings, right, who are, like, in the room together. And I knew that they were cool. And this was a still, like, a stage in my ministry where I was trying to be cool. And I'm like, oh, yeah, like, I know. I know how to dress I know how to, like, the lingo that the youths are using these. Like, I get it, you know, the, the whole thing all the way through. So I can, I can be like them. And so we're starting off one of our sessions, and before we jumped into it, you know, and they're just making small talk, and they're like, hey, Pastor Dirk, like, you know, what what'd you do last night? And I'm like, ah, oh, you know, just the wife and I, Netflix and chill. Some of you get that reference. The rest of you can Google it later. Like, make sure your filters are on. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. Um, 
it doesn't mean what I thought it meant, which is just like hang out and watch Netflix, like watch TV. I will remind us that I was married at that point for like 10 years, so whatever the definition is, I still think we're like sanctified and good in that. <laughs> but, but as soon as I said that, like the room just bursts out laughing because they know, and I came to find out really, really quick that what that phrase meant did not mean at that time what I thought that it had meant. And now I'm looking at it and I'm going, man, I probably, because of who I am, used 20,000 words that day, and they've got to pick out just the three and, and laugh at me and make sure that I never live this thing down, right? Words carry weight. We know that words carry weight. We know that they're not like the sand on the shore. They're not like the little teaspoon of water. Each word has immeasurable value to it. And how we use it matters. Like there's things that I could say on stage right now that it could, our board, our lead team could just be like, hey, listen, Dirk, we had a great run with you. You know, 13 years, church started in your living room. You know, God blessed it. It grew up ever since. But like, I don't think you're invited back next week. Like there's... Words that I could say right now that is like, I'm done. You're not going to hear from me again. Words carry a huge amount of weight. Listen to the words that Jesus says in Matthew 12, verse 36. Jesus says, I tell you that everyone will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. We're coming back to empty word they have spoken. For by your words, you'll be acquitted. And by your words, you will be condemned. 16,000 words every single day. Jesus, as the word, knows the words that we use. And the words that he uses to describe our words are acquitted and condemned. Even the empty ones for him here, especially the empty ones. As a pastor, one of the benefits that I have is getting to know a lot of people, a lot of professionals in their areas. And so I got to contact somebody in preparation for this message to tell me, a counselor, to tell me a little bit about words, and she sent over this quote. Words are singularly the most powerful force available to humanity. We can choose to use this force constructively with words of encouragement or destructively using words of despair. Words have energy and power with the ability to help, to heal, to hinder, to hurt, to harm, to humiliate, and to humble. A couple of doctors got together a while ago and published this, uh, this book simply titled, Words Can Change Your Brain. And they just looked at brain chemistry and, and scans as they flashed words in front of people. Positive words like peace and love. And they found it strengthens, actually, activity in the frontal lobe of your brain where a lot of decision-making and personality is from. It shapes us. It forms us. They found it, be, it made uh, people uh, more re- resilient and increased cognitive functioning in the people that they were testing. On the flip side, negative words flash in front of them, activated the amygdala, the fear center of the brain, and it actually stunted that same cognitive functioning, even language usage, and decision-making, logic, reasoning for the people that they were studying. But you also know this too, don't you? I'll bet on your way home with the person that you came here with, you, you could remember 
what they called you on the playground that put you in that place. I can. It still stings. You're probably thinking of it right now. And even though it could be the furthest thing from the truth, it probably still hurts. A little while ago, I was hanging out with a guy uh, that I just met. And we're in this circle, and we didn't know each other very well, a bunch of other guys. And so we're just talking about what, some stuff that we've got grow, coming up. And he's like, man, i got to go back to my... Go back to my high school reunion. You know, it's, it's been over 30 years. And I got to see those people again. I'm like, whoa. Not excited about this one. He goes, yeah, it's just a weird thing. He's, I think, 6'6", super successful, a smart guy. A ninth grader, he was already that tall. He tried out for his high school basketball team. In tryouts, somebody throws him the ball. He drops a pass. Somebody yells out, stone hands. It's stuck. It's been 30 years. He's hanging at a party with perfect strangers, and he still remembers, still remembers. It still triggers that part in his brain. I don't want to go back. I don't want to go to that place. I don't want to see those people. I don't want to become that guy anymore. You know that words carry weight. Jesus knows that words carry weight. The power of life and death, it's embedded into the very creation that he made. For the purpose this morning, there's 150 different Proverbs that talk about how we use our words and how they matter. We're going to focus on just one area. It's the area that we alluded to with those words of Jesus a little bit earlier, that everyone will be judged for every empty word that they have spoken. Judgment, acquittal, condemnation comes on the empty words that we have spoken. And I want to focus just on two different kinds of empty words that I find myself and some others. This could be particularly helpful for. It's empty promises and empty actions. A couple of Proverbs coming at us. The first one is this one from Proverbs 25 verse 14. Talking about words, Solomon finds this truthism, this wisdom Like clouds and wind without rain is one who boasts of gifts never given. Like clouds and wind without rain is one who boasts of gifts never given. There's this story, the first time I think that it was ever written down at least. It was 1944, the Agricultural Digest, which I know we've got a lot of subscribers here, huge fan personally, but it's this kind of big talking brash cowboy that goes into his local bank and asks for this huge loan, buy up this property. And the banker's trying to do his due diligence, so he goes out to the property and starts talking to the people that know this big brash cowboy type of dude that talks a, a huge game. And so the banker comes across one of this guy's neighbors who happens also to be a Native American. And so there's a bit of a, at least in that era, there's a bit of a, a language barrier that's going on and they can't quite understand each other and the banker's trying to get an understanding of like who this cowboy is. And the only thing that could, the Native American gentleman could like express to the banker asking about his neighbor was, big hat, no cattle. He talks a huge game, right? He'll walk into your office and he's got a plan and he's got a hope and he's got a dream. 
But the guy's like, listen, I'm his neighbor, and I happen to know it's all talk. It's like clouds that are filling, and they're promising rain. And it just will never happen. For us, living where we do, as I said, the freshwater capital of the world, we do not think about rain holding out on us as threatening our livelihood or lives. Solomon did. We've got a picture of a field on the screen, and it's just heavy storm clouds on the horizon, and you can see it's going to rain. And a farmer is looking out on a field like that, and he's going, yeah, it's going to rain, just not on my field. It's going to rain for somebody else and not me. I need this. Come on. You know, I think Solomon, like writing on the proverb, referencing a scene like that, and he's going, we're not talking about just like slightly brownish lawns or a hassle to have to sprinkle the, the lawn a little bit more this season. He's going, my life is at stake. I mean, if it doesn't rain, the crops don't grow and we go hungry. And for the farmer looking up at the clouds that are full of rain that just doesn't fall down, at least not on my field, the farmer's looking out at that thing going, you know what happens? The taunting and the teasing of the clouds actually make it worse. It would be better if it was a beautiful, sunny, blue sky day and no rain than to see that on the horizon with the same result. The empty promise makes it worse, doesn't it? When the drywaller comes to this project that you wanted to just be done so you could move in and move on, and he says, I'm going to be there on Monday, and you're like, fantastic, because the painter's going to be here on Thursday. And then Monday happens, and Tuesday, and Wednesday, and you're telling the painter, don't show up on Thursday. We don't have drywall done, and it's a long way from being dry. When do you want me there? I don't know yet. He says Monday, this Monday, we're starting it over again. The empty promise makes it worse. When you've got plans, you're ready to serve, you're ready to show up, you're ready to volunteer in the kids' classroom, and like you said you were going to be there, and there was a schedule out months in advance, and when that text comes in, something came up, I can't make it. The empty promise makes it worse. I know that I've been at the office. I know that I've been traveling a lot. I'm going to be home. Kids, we're going to do something fun together. We're going to go sledding. We're going to have a day. It's just going to be us. I'm coming home from work early, maybe skipping entirely. It's going to be awesome. And when it doesn't happen, the empty promise makes it worse, doesn't it? And it doesn't matter if it's intentional. I made a promise I knew that I could not keep. Or unintentional. I really wanted to be the type of person who keeps their promises. Listen, on the other end of that, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't make a difference. And I'm going to take it a step further here and really kind of get up in your business a little bit on this one. Uh, Simon Sinek uh, has this, you know, he talks about technology and he talks about the shallowing of human relationships because of technology, social media, all this sort of stuff. So it's great stuff. But he was kind of one of the people that highlighted early on uh, FOMO, the fear of, fear of missing out. Well, you guys get this, right? And, uh, you know, so we have a hard time committing to things because we have this fear of, like, missing something else that's going on. So we're like, we don't want to say yes necessarily. And then there's, there's been a reaction to that, right? Of like, no, 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 I don't want to be the person who never says yes. And so, like, one of the insights is that instead of, 
Instead of being the kind of person who never says yes or never says no, it's like, no, I'm going to say yes, but instead of committing FOMO right now, we're actually committing FOBO right now. It's not the fear of missing out, but the new thing is the fear of a better offer that comes along that keeps us from committing. Like that's the thing underneath the thing. And so he's talking about like the shallowing of, of human relationships that we're experiencing right now. And it's like, listen, we have a new definition of the word yes. Like yes, what it means, what yes, what yes used to mean is, listen, I'm going to be there unless there's some kind of obvious medical emergency or a loved one that's hospitalized. And then, of course, we all understand that I'm not going to be there. We've redefined what yes means. Not I'll be there barring a medical emergency of a loved one. Yes is now I'm going to be there you know, unless somebody else makes me an offer of something more interesting, and then all of a sudden my yes is much more squishy than it was before, and then I'm going to go do that thing instead. And he's going, how toxic this is to actually developing the kind of relationships, the friendships, the deep intimacy with people maybe that you love, people in your life that you're hoping for. We've redefined the word yes, or in the words of Jesus, man, let your yes be yes, and your no be no. One of the definitions of integrity is simply doing what you said that you would do. I encourage us as followers of Jesus to heed those words carefully. Let's be the kind of people that make promises that we can keep and keep promises that we make. Clouds without wind, without rain, is one who boasts of gifts never given. The empty promise makes it worse. Um, there's an empty promises and then there's an empty action. This one is going to speak to some of us. Proverbs 14, 23. Wisdom that God embedded into the world. Work brings profit, but mere talk leads to poverty. It's obvious on the outset. Work brings profit. Talk, mere talk leads to poverty. And maybe it's just so obvious that we just have to slow it down and I just got to say it another way. You know this, just as a reminder to all of us, starting with me, there's a huge difference, isn't there, in his day of talking about plowing a field and actually getting out and plowing the field. I mean, in his day, harvest, agricultural setting, huge difference between talking about getting out in the hot sun and getting dirty and working hard and talking about getting outside in the hot sun and getting dirty and working hard, there's a huge difference. And you won't even notice what that huge difference is until it comes time to harvest, until it has some time to like put food on the table. Then you realize with stark clarity what the difference is between doing it and talking about doing it. A, a, a few weeks ago, we were talking about margin, we're talking about different kinds of margin, we're talking about financial margin. And I shared with you a bit of my personality, and I think it scared some of you because I heard a little bit about it, about how my wife and I, we have this budget that we go through, and like every dollar that we've ever spent for the last 10 years is accounted on this huge spreadsheet that honestly has gotten really out of hand. But I was like, I don't, we do this thing, and we've talked about not doing it a lot, and I was honest with you, and I said, I don't, we do it. We're going to keep budgeting. We're going to keep doing the things just so I have the moral high ground to tell you that I do it, so you should too. You know, some of the back history on that. We didn't always do it. You know, when we first got married a million years ago, it was a very long time ago, we first got married, 
I could look up, and thanks to the Social Security Administration, I can see what our household income was the very first full year, calendar year, that we were married. So I did. It was $26,000 between the two of us. And I had a seminary tuition bill on top of that, so it was starkly less. There was something that was born out of having not much. You know, there weren't that many dollars to keep track of, so we could keep track of every single one of them, right? In the words of Dave Ramsey, every dollar had a name, and it wasn't hard to name them. We had to. This was, this was survival. But then I finished school, and she kept on working. We both kind of progressed, and, and for a while there, you know, two incomes, no ki- dual income, no kids. We're called dinks at that point. You know, it's fun. And honestly, we didn't have to keep track of the money anymore because it was just, you know, we didn't, it was enough. It was always enough. And then it was her turn to go back to school. And so she enrolls in a program, and she's no longer working full-time. She, well, she's working, you know, just going to school. I've got to watch my words here. Uh, she's working hard, but, you know, the, the money wasn't there like it was. We went from two incomes to one income. We went from having zero kids to having two kids. And nothing else changed. You could, you could probably tell what happened interpersonally. Stress is injected into the system. Arguments are injected into the system. Conflict is present. I mean, it wasn't good. And we, and we kind of knew what we got to do, right? We had lots of conversation. We, talk, we talked about cutting back. We talked about making some meaningful sacrifices. For probably a year or more, we talked about sitting down and actually doing a budget. We talked. And I could experience this firsthand, you guys, like mere talk leading to poverty. And so on January, nope, uh, June 1, 2014, I think the kids were probably staying over with grandma and grandpa. So grandmas and grandpas, watch your kids. That's the life lesson here, your grandkids. Uh, Kids were with grandma and grandpa. We sat down uh, June 1, 2014, and we created a spreadsheet called 6.1.14, which is the same spreadsheet that we still use today. Because mere talk leads to poverty. And there's a difference between talking about something and doing something. What are you talking about? We've talked about finding a counselor. We've talked about making a budget. We've talked about finding a church or getting involved in one. We've talked about having those neighbors over for dinner so we could get to know them a little bit more. We've talked about finishing the last two courses of the degree. We've talked about it. I just want to teach you something to simply recognize and to simply say, I will not, I will not complain my way into a better marriage. I will not excuse myself into healthier living. And I will not grumble my way into the life that Jesus has meant for me to live. I will not do these things. But instead, replacing that with this, Jesus, your cross forgives me and your resurrection empowers me. Your cross forgives me for all of the ways that I've talked, I've tried, I've failed. Your cross forgives me. 
And Jesus, your resurrection empowers me to try again, to do again. One of my favorite stories in the Old Testament is the story from Nehemiah, and we've done a whole message series on this one in the past, and I'm sure we'll do another message series in the future. But it's ancient times, ancient Israel, when, when the city of Jerusalem is decimated, the walls are struck down, it's just rubble. The, the picture that the author gives is like people can just come and go in Jerusalem like they want to. They can just come and take whatever they want and they can just leave. It's like nobody can accumulate anything worth having, anything of value, because there's no fortifications to defend this city whatsoever. And then Nehemiah comes along. And I know there's a lot of different factors, and I'm kind of distilling the story down very briefly for us here. But Nehemiah comes along. And he's going, you know, the problem with the city is pretty obvious. Everybody can just come and take whatever they want and then leave again. I think we need to build, rebuild these fortifications around the city of Jerusalem. It's pretty clear, right? And they're like, yeah, good luck, dude. Those fortifications have been laid waste decades ago. I mean, a, almost an entire generation has grown up and passed on before these walls have ever been built. It just can't be done. So Nehemiah moves from Babylon, then, then Persia, he moves to, to Jerusalem. He's going, let's get to work. Let's do this thing. And the whole people, they, they focus on one thing. They focus all their energy, not on talking about rebuilding those fortifications, but on actually rebuilding those fortifications. They're finding a counselor. They're getting a budget. They're digging into a small group. They're doing the thing that they talked about doing for a very long time. And what was laid in rubble for decades was rebuilt in 52 days. 52 days it took to build those fortifications into something that was going to protect them. Decades of talking, 52 days of work, and God did it through them. I'm just making an observation that the first day of spring is a little under 52 days away. You're going to hit, congratulations, the first day of spring no matter what. The question is, are you still going to be talking about it? Or will you have made some forward momentum, forward progress towards it? Is this just going to be another empty promise or another empty action by the time spring comes? Or will you be able to look back and see the fingerprints of Jesus on your life? I did it. Jesus, your cross forgives me for all of the ways that I've failed. Your resurrection empowers me. Talk leads to poverty. Empty promises like clouds that promise rain and it never comes. Integrity, be the the kind of person who follows through who uses your words carefully because every word matters. It strikes me that this is, this is who the God is that we just worshiped about. That like a father, this is who our God is on a profound level. It's this attribute that he injected into his creation, a part of him that we can work alongside. It's who he is. He is the, the kind of God that looks at Abraham and says, I'm going to make you into a great nation like the sand on the shore and the stars in the sky. And he follows through on a promise like that. He looks at David and says, one of your descendants is going to sit on the throne forever and ever, amen. And Jesus fulfilled that promise forever and ever, amen. He looks at Jesus as Jesus looks at all of us and says, believe in me and you will not die. You will have eternal life. And he has made good on that promise. Your cross forgives me. Your resurrection empowers me. 
Words matter. So I get my kids around the table after I put this book down, last lecture. And I said, um, kids, what are some words that I use all the time? I'm auditing my words. What do you hear me say? And they offered some profound dadisms that were so good I wrote them down. One of them was, when we say, can I go to the bathroom? You say, I don't know, can you? (laughs) Didn't just get one haircut, got them all cut. (laughs) Solid stuff. (laughs) I'm auditing my words and I'm realizing we, we could do better. We can do better. So I decided every time they got out of the car, I'm going to say the same three things. I'm going to say, be a friend and make a friend. Work hard, have fun, and find a way to bring heaven down to earth. I'll tell you if it's working in 18 years. (laughs) Every word counts. Make it count. I want to invite you to stand up. Let's pray to our Father who loves us to death again, back to new life. Jesus, you have embedded into this very creation life, wisdom, shakma. We want to follow after you. We want to live the wise life. We want to live according to how you have intended us to live, to to live the best life possible, the most meaningful life possible, the most purpose-filled life possible. And you have spelled that out for us in a million different ways throughout this creation and especially in your word, in the Bible. But we also rely on you, Spirit, to guide us and to make these statements true in our life. Because a statement is only helpful if it's lived out. So Spirit, empower us. Forgive us. And show us how to live. Amen. Hey, church. It's our sincere prayer that this message was able to help you find new life in Christ. And if you did find it helpful, would you consider donating to help drive this ministry forward? And don't forget, there's no substitute for doing life together. So find a worship experience, join a small group, or a serving team today. You can do all this at EncounterChurch.org.